Welcome to Jason and the Movie Nuts. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Chris Wunderlich. And we are talking about the uh, very unique films of Alejandro Jodorowsky. Specifically, we're talking about El Topo from 1970 and The Dance of Reality from 2013. Uh, both just amazing, surreal, fascinating films. Yes, very uh, unique and very challenging. <laughs> so Yudorowsky was has been involved in the art for his entire life. He's in his 80s now. Uh, I just had it right here. Born 1929. Uh, still making movies as of just a few years ago. He's uh, in his and, 90s. Yes, he's in his 90s now. Um, and film was he actually came to film late. He was involved in theater, music, puppetry. He studied mime with Marcel Marceau. Yeah. <laughs> He's got this incredibly diverse background. Uh, Ebert says uh, at Cannes 1998, Hodorowski handed me a typewritten autobiography. It's short, so I'll read it. Was born in Bolivia of Russian parents, lived in Chile, worked in Paris was the partner of Marcel Marceau, founded the Panic Movement with Fernando Arabal, directed 100 plays in Mexico, drew a comic strip, made El Topo, and now lives in the United States, having not been accepted anywhere because in Bolivia, I was a Russian. In Chile, I was a Jew. In Paris, I was a Chilean. In Mexico, I was French. And now in America, I am Mexican. <laughs> oh, boy. He's so, a collecting identity. Collecting identity. And uh, never quite one with the rest of the world. Except maybe the artistic community. Yes. Uh, two facts I think perfectly lead to the discussion of these films. Absolutely. Because these are, uh, these, and you've seen um, others by him, I've only seen these two, um, are, are these films that are kind of outside of the norm outside of the mainstream different feel different qualities to them um certainly non-linear in in very intriguing ways uh, el topo works on a well, actually both films that we're going to discuss work on a symbolic level as much as oh, a yeah. uh, physical level but they also have this incredible physicality to them yeah that's the thing that they're they're they can be seen as non-linear but they're also kind of linear they're just yeah. so weird that you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you have to wonder, uh, less so less so in the dance of reality, but certainly yeah. El Topo, you have to wonder if linearity even matters. Oh, yeah. You got to wonder what matters at all in that movie. So let's jump into what matters in that movie. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, did, what did you think, um, boy, as soon as it started? El Topo. So you've mentioned to me, uh, and like I said, this is the first time I've watched these and just in the last couple of weeks, you mentioned to me, they are a bit grueling. I think yeah. was the word you used. And that was certainly the feeling I had with El Topo, not knowing what to expect. And, you know, I always make a point of like really not prepping at all going into these movies. I should say we are going to spoil both films. Uh, so be warned there. Uh, it's particularly important in the case of Dance of Reality, which has... Um, its own unique elements. So if you're concerned about not knowing what happens, uh, we will tell you what happens. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, so El Topo opens uh, in kind of a way that 
really kind of symbolically sets the pace for it, right? We see this black clad man and his naked young boy who's only wearing shoes, moccasins. And a hat. And a hat. Yeah. Um, and they are out in, in what looks like an endless desert and yep. a very a picture of what we assume is his mother mm-hmm. and a toy. And just right then and there, I'm like, this is an interesting film. This is going to take us to a different place. This is a transition into a, a different sort of reality. And from then on, uh, it just kind of continued going in that direction. It's one of these films where, you know, a lot of times you'll be put in a movie and you'll know, like, really what's going to happen. And it's kind of comforting. Yeah. In this film, yeah. you never know what's going to happen, including, you know, abrupt camera edits and strange character moments and uh, certainly all the violence and sexual violence that's part of it. Physical violence and sexual violence is part of it. Um, and so you're never comfortable oh yeah no that that's for sure i think right from the first scene he definitely gets your back up and says like look here's a kid who's just going to be naked for the movie you just have to accept that right you know from minute one and then you immediately go to the the village of the slaughtered people and animals and rivers of blood and it's an immediate like you know this is what the movie's going to be you're going to be shocked in almost every frame you just have to you know he he puts it all up front there um and I think it should be said, this isn't so much one movie as it is kind of three movies. <laughs> kind of three movies, yeah. yeah. And I think he definitely eases the audience in, um, not content-wise, but story-wise with the first part of this movie. Mm-hmm. He makes the first part easy to understand and almost familiar, but he definitely has a mission statement um, and I guess it goes back to his experience in the shock theater, right? He's definitely just out to shock you up front do you think he's out to shock us for the sake of shock or do you think he's aiming at something deeper uh a little bit of both because again how it opens right with the bearing of the picture of the mother and the toy he's definitely going for something deeper but then when it immediately cuts to the bandit sniffing shoes and the other guy making the little woman out of rocks and then pretending to yeah he's definitely going for shock (laughs) right and then, the, and then, as the scene goes on, we see, uh, we the massacre. Yeah, the people like literally bodies strewn everywhere. Um, it almost feels like a genocidal type attack. Um, and then we see we discover this was all created by a character we know as the Colonel. Yeah, this kind of man child who's never grown up, who's completely uh, part of his base feelings or base emotions. And, um, you know, beats up in the most strange ways um, the the monks, right? They're monks. Yep, yep, yep. Paddled with cacti so, to the point that their asses bleed, but also they dance with his henchmen. It's, it's all very oh, deeply off-putting. Yeah, I mean, the, the first section of the movie is very, very simple Western in terms of structure, right? He follows, he finds the, the town, full of the the dead people and again he could have made this point anyway but they're definitely going for shock with the amount of blood and violence and just disturbing imagery and then you know he follows the trail to the three bandits right and the audience is kind of okay he's a gunslinger but then he shows his prowess and easily dispatches the three bandits right and then follows the trail further to the like you said where the monks are and the church is being held hostage and there's the colonel 
right? So it's all very like a just a, a sort of a mini movie of a three act structure western here, where yeah. the the man with no name rides in, and you know, sort of avenges the town and takes down the villain. Um, might I add though, like one thing to be noted throughout every part of this movie is it is amazingly shot. Like the imagery, this could if this was like not shot as beautifully, this could have easily just been, you know, forgotten, just awful piece of art trash. But this mm-hmm. thing is just. The, even the worst images on screen are so beautiful to look at. <laughs> yeah, there's a the composition of this film. You can really see that he was an artist, right? And he was composing these scenes in a way that just really made them look beautiful. The cinematography in this film is astonishing, and it takes us to another world. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the director of photography deserves just as much credit as he does. You know, like it's just ah, uh, such a such a good looking movie that that the imagery is so arresting you, you can't help but look away even when the most disgusting things are happening on screen i mean i i'm sounding like i didn't enjoy at least the initial part um there's a lot i found really challenging about it i guess is what oh, i yeah. keep coming back to um you know it's called an acid western and it, it, it is kind of the flip side of the clint eastwood westerns that i'm a big fan of yeah um because you know it does take a similar structure. In fact, we this is a character El Topo, right? He doesn't really have a name. Well, I think I mean they call him the mole. The right? mole, that's, right? That's yeah, but you know he may as well be the two gun kid or Blondie or whatever it might be. Yeah, he's right. the man with no name, right? Yeah, he's yeah. he's essentially the man with no name. He has no history, no past, right? He literally buries the past. The past is now completely gone. Yeah, and and at the end of the sequence, he even uh, he even just lets his child go off, right? He yeah, abandons the... his child, um, so he's divorcing himself from everything around him. The cinematographer's name is Raphael Corchiti, by the way. Corchiti, yeah, good for him. Good for <laughs> we all benefited from his work. Yes, uh, but I I think yeah, there there is that sort of you know he has a history because he's riding around with his this kid who we assume is his son right and maybe there's this mother maybe he just picked up this kid we don't know but yeah he very much uh has this little adventure at the beginning where he you know rides in defeats the bad guy in a horribly brutal way there's lots of violence and gore and perversion and it's it's awful but it's very simple to understand and then i guess when this this little first part is done he totally divorces himself like you said he leaves the kid behind with the monks and he rides off with the woman he just saved and suddenly it's like whatever just happened doesn't matter i mean it almost establishes him as a hero in the first part he even calls himself he even calls himself god he says to the colonel i am your god yeah yeah i and it should be noted there's so much um i'm gonna say attempted symbolism Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to like Eastern philosophy and Christian imagery and all that, uh, because there's a lot that's thrown at you in terms of little voiceovers or li- little, you know, there's not a lot of dialogue, very little dialogue, right? In mm-hmm. the first place. So whenever he tries to say something philosophical, um, you kind of have to wonder like, okay, does this have a deeper meaning? Can I apply this to the scene? Or is he just kind of being weird and wanting to be deep? 
And I feel that kind of happens throughout the whole movie is where there's a lot of symbolism, but it almost doesn't matter what it means, you know? Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from this movie now being 50 years old, specific yeah. to its time in Chile. I know there's a political context to the film from the at the time it was made, certainly a lot more, again, a dance of reality. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think there's there's stuff that goes over our heads from that standpoint, and also in terms of like the influence of the Christian church yeah catholic church in chile at that time yeah Um, yeah at the same time um there's a couple interesting interpretations i was reading of this of the the three-act structure of this film one is that we go from the simple morality of a western yeah the ambiguous morality of the guru scenes Mm -hmm. to the destroyed version of morality at the end where el topo aims to be heroic and his heroism just it just is nullified and in hmm. the middle section you know we're going to get to it in a minute but he essentially is trying to achieve some sort of transcendence by being by defeating the the masters he wants to become the greatest master there is right we've seen this trope a million times especially in like kung fu movies but he's actually he actually doesn't achieve his mastery uh right. the the uh masters kind of defeat themselves at least the final master defeats himself um and and so you can see this progression from idealism to realism to nihilism okay i think that works i don't know if that makes it a richer viewing experience <laughs> but <laughs> you can definitely apply that after the fact and it, it makes sense um, but yeah, I mean, the first act, again, very easy to understand, very simple Western. He rides off into the wilderness with the woman he just saved. And then we have the second part that you were talking about where he suddenly has this mission to defeat the the four, right? Four. The four great gunslingers who are very much mythological figures, but also real in this movie. And it's his mission. And again, it's sort of after the fact that I've read things about his quest for enlightenment, because it's really not clear in this movie that he's on a quest for enlightenment. I feel like that's something that's very easily applied after the fact to say that's what happened. But I think the biggest weakness of this middle section, which is very cool and very trippy and where the movie goes totally off the rails, is that sort of this whole quest seems to be spurned on by this woman he just saved who suddenly turns into like this very bizarre, almost evil character. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's just a very like flick of the light switch, how this woman went from being like, you know, a strong prisoner who, uh, you know, was bracing herself against the evils around her to, oh, I'm saved. And then she puts him on this quest to defeat the gun. She says, you need to be the best for me. And da, da, da. and it sort of reeks of um, personal opinion in his like it almost seems like misogyny on his behalf yeah it's i don't know i found the whole middle section of the movie shot really well uh composed really well but at the same time like i don't know really off-putting sort of like this is a quest to impress this woman uh i don't know and then there's this other woman who joins them and again, lots of symbolism, lots of like, oh, they're doing 
this thing with the mirror that must mean something and oh there's a candy or you know lots of just weird imagery but again it kind of gets lost in the well I would just like a little more um yeah a bit of a mission statement that I can play along with you know yeah yeah because in the first act yeah um Mara is basically just a woman he saves the second act we see who she really is and she's this kind of manipulator who forces him to go on this quest that really ultimately doesn't matter ultimately results in him being shot possibly killed depending on how you interpret it too and (laughs) then her just riding off with that other woman who's only known as the woman in black as far as i can tell yeah um and there's been uh, some conversation about whether that woman in black is supposed to be a typical female doppelganger in some in some way represents another side of him if so (laughs) I don't get it. I guess I'm not that sophisticated a watcher. Uh, I just found her her actions in the sequence kind of baffling. Yes. Yeah. And, and from a plot standpoint, which I realize is kind of maybe the least important part of this film, uh, just doesn't really justify itself. Yeah, and I think I think that's the problem is that you know we get a plot in the beginning, and it's easy enough to say like I don't know who this character is. It doesn't matter. But there's a sequence of events we can follow. And you understand, you know, like if Podoreski goes out of his way to give the character motivation in the first scene where it's like, oh, look at this village of killed, you know, slaughtered people. He is going to enact vengeance on their behalf. You know, he very much sets up motivation for this character that leads us through the first part of the movie. It's good. But the motivation for the second part doesn't make any sense. (laughs) <laughs> which makes it a lot harder to you know buy into and i could i could totally get on board with all the weirdness if i had a little more like you know if they made this very clear like it was his quest for enlightenment or something or if if it was his you know just some more substance to why the thing was happening then he can do whatever he wants he can make whatever he wants happen so you know <laughs> <laughs> so is your frustration that it didn't really feel like it came from inside El topo mm. Uh, yeah it didn't come from him it to me it's like oh he saved this woman then the woman demands he goes on this quest and you know throughout his quest he's thinking like oh i can't defeat this guy i better cheat you know and he it sort of makes him just such a like slave to this woman who's you know care it just seems a little hateful to me to be like and then al topo doesn't become a hero he becomes a loser and he only wins by cheating and it's because of this woman mm-hmm. it's like oh that's i don't know i can't play ball with that you know yeah i see that i see that and i think that makes a lot of sense uh because you know we are kind of just lost in, in these scenes trying to figure out um just what kind of motivation he brings to these moments they're beautifully yeah. shot and i think the masters oh, yeah. are fascinating right the one with the lion wandering behind him was so interesting each of them represents a different era of history or a different uh philosophy and you know i'm sure yodorosko has rodoroski has uh a hodorowski has yeah. uh, deeper <laughs> meanings behind each of those yeah um, yeah which uh but yeah, ultimately the quest feels like it's it's an empty achievement because Maybe it doesn't come from point. within, and because you know he he does cheat to achieve it. 
Now, does he cheat to achieve it because his heart is is ultimately not in it? Or does he cheat because he is ineffectual? Or does he cheat because he's being manipulated into having been part of these events? Uh, these are rhetorical questions. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I, I do really like the scenes. Like, man, those those masters and just all the all the neat imagery. Like, let, let's just go through it a little. You know, he meets yeah. the, the first guy who's in this uh, tower that you have to climb up a ladder to get and then go down into the tower. And he's a blind uh, gunslinger, you know, who just lets the bullets pass through his flesh. And that's why he can't be defeated. And he's being served by uh, a guy who has no arms who carries a guy with no legs on his back. And again, it's just one of those things like, even if you can't buy into what's happening, you can't look away because there's just so much creativity on screen. Right. <laughs> so exactly. much fascinating things. Like he can throw the craziest uh, spewing of, you know, Eastern philosophy and you can't absorb it. And you think, okay, I'll take this in later. You know, when the movie's done, I'll take this in. I'll try to think about it later. But again, you can't look away. Like there's just, <laughs> it's just so neat what he puts on the screen yeah. and it almost makes the rest of it forgivable. Um, although, I did find it almost unforgivable that sort of between part one and part two, there's the scene of um, him in the desert with this woman. And, you know, they're looking for the first gunslinger and they're looking for water and they're kind of going through a bit of a survival trip where it's like, oh, the desert is about to take them. And then there's like a really unnecessary rape scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which actually kind of, I think it meant a lot to Odoreski to keep it in there because he's talking about it a lot too. And maybe it's, just, I mean, I'm sure it's symbolic and I'm sure it has plot meaning, but it really uh, sours your taste for the character. Like, and maybe that's on purpose. You know, maybe he goes instantly from being this hero who defeated the Colonel to this monster who is out to like, you know, conquer by cheating. And just, I don't know. The, the whole thing, it takes a really rotten turn. It makes you feel bad inside, even though you're enjoying what you're looking at. Yeah. Well, he's, he's not a hero. Not you at want all. to make him into a hero. You want El Topo to be our hero. I mean, Hodorowski plays him, too. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is even could be seen as a tip of the hat. But no, he's much more complicated than that. He's much more uh, confusing. Like yeah, enigmatic I mean, maybe. Uh, it, I also read him as kind of a satire of those Western heroes. Okay. Like Leone was in dialogue with classic westerns. I think in some in some ways, Hodorowski was in dialogue with classic westerns. And yeah. he's he's saying to us, first of all, I'm going to put him in a black hat. I'm going to make his actions ambiguous, and then I'm going to have him do things that uh, we root for, but then also that we despise. And yeah. put, to put us in a place where we're questioning what it means for us to be following a hero. If this even and, is a hero at all. You know what? Like, I, I like that interpretation. And and I like how that is supported by what's on screen. I just wish his downfall wasn't solely on the shoulders of this woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like, I, I wish the character flaw came from within. You know, I wish we could have slowly revealed him. I mean... Yeah, he rapes this woman, and we instantly don't like him anymore. Yeah, but then she's awful to him, 
And it's like, okay, is she awful because they have an awful relationship or does Hodorowski just have a problem with women or, you know, like why does this woman become almost the central evil driving force in his quest? Kind when, of all kind of all of the above, right, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I just again, if he was in if he was talking uh, or uh, commenting on classic western, you know, it would have been so much better to just be like his character is revealed naturally instead of like and then this woman told him to cheat, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the rape scene is shocking and difficult to watch. Uh he he uses a jump cut to sh- to show it you get a, a brief glimpse of it that's one thing we haven't really talked about much with this film also is like there's the cuts are so uh <laughs> disconcerting is a, maybe a word you oh, never man. you never feel like you have any sort of balance in these scenes you always feel like like everything is just like it's so unpredictable that it makes everything you see even more shocking because you never have like your feet under you Oh yeah, I mean this this could have easily been a weird movie, but I think people call it the acid western because of the editing. You know, I mean, just, oh, the 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 beautiful scene where he's in his first showdown with the first gunslinging master, and they're walking towards each other, and you think this is going to be standard, you know, standoff western kind of thing, and then the cuts come, mm-hmm. and a shot's fired, and then symbolist in- imagery and. <laughs> just uh it's 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 a wacky world of editing it sure is and <laughs> it certainly elevates uh what's going on i mean i can see people being turned off by it but i think that's one of the uh more intriguing parts of the creativity here right yeah yeah i think it's it's both the one of the most off-putting and one of the most compelling things right yeah uh and it's so classic for movies of that time too easy riders yeah another example like just a strange editing choices uh, that are meant to leave you kind of off balance the entire time. Uh, were you going to talk yeah. about the other three masters too? Okay. Oh boy, if I can, I mean, again, this is a long movie. Uh, it's not super long, but it, it feels like a real, real epic. You know, <laughs> like so much happens. Uh, boy, what was the second master? That the was the one. The master with the lion. With the lion and the his mother or yeah, his wife. His mother, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. And uh, boy, that guy easily defeats him and spends most of the time just toying with uh, El Topo there and sort of uh, philosophizing, you know, explaining things to him and explaining how great he is and how easily he defeated him and, you know, just sort of giving him tidbits. And it's sort of, he could have killed him at any time, but instead he just wants to, you know, kind of just talk and uh, pass on his knowledge, even to someone he's just defeated ah and then boy how does el topo when he he breaks the glass right and has the mother step on it so it's sort of like he found his weakness it wasn't within the gunslinger it was within it was, someone else yeah it's in the mother that he was attached to another kind of symbolic kind of moment there too yeah and again this is i mean people say this movie influenced a lot and it's very clear this movie reminds me a lot of like, you know, so much of the modern stuff we see today, especially like anime where, uh, you know, you have unbeatable character and unbeatable character. How are they going to beat each other? Right. And, and that's sort of the whole point is like, oh, 
there was this one weakness and this one character <laughs> was able to, right? Like I can totally see every anime looking at this and being like, yeah, yeah. What if he just went around and fought the most powerful characters and beat them in creative ways? That's that's the middle part of this movie, and that's so many shows today, you know. Yeah, but he barely beats them, and he doesn't beat the oh, last yeah. guy at all. Not right? at so all. It's like nihilistic. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's very much. Um, he wins, but he doesn't win at all. And I mean, as much complaining as I can uh, throw at the middle section, it does set up the last section very well. Let's go into the last section. We don't need to to dwell on the other masters uh so the last last section is kind of a quest film and it's in its own way oh yeah um finally we get a a female character who we can like and appreciate who is treated well uh that's true yeah yeah that's true actually (laughs) and uh yeah i've been thinking about her a lot because she's like she is kind of a saving grace from that standpoint of this film yep yeah uh yeah okay i'll go with that <laughs> uh because like so okay so uh el topo wakes up at the end of the second section of the film el topo was shot and falls into you know a coma or something he gets shot in, in stigmata ways he's got bullets through his hands and his feet right um like jesus on the cross wakes up um in a cave his beard is incredibly long. His hair is turned white from its original gray, original black, excuse me. Um, and he finds himself in a cave with um, hundreds of people who have some sort of injuries or disabilities. Yeah. Uh, we're told as a result of inbreeding. Yeah. And he is. he decides to create a passage from... Uh, these people from the cave down to the village down below, which would ordinarily take five days to get to. So he goes into the village, which has uh, some sort of complex religious uh, authority running it. There's uh, in the background of every moment in that village is this image of a triangle with an eye in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And um, in the end, um, he's able to, uh, he he encounters his son again, a grown version of his son who's now working as the priest of the church that seems to be running the town. And um, through the help of his son, he's able to build the tunnel. Uh, the people come rushing through and they're all slaughtered by the townspeople who are there. Um, and it's, and at, at the very end, um, his body is, El Topo is killed. His body, he, or no, he, sorry. Uh, El Topo is shot, is does not fall to the bullets that are shot to him. Right. But then he immolates himself like a Vietnamese monk. And well, well and let's in, not forget he massacres the town first. He massacres the town. And then um we see his body eaten by flies and, and grubs and all bees, this stuff. Bees. This is this is a freaking nightmare trip we go through in this in this film in this third part oh, yeah. of the film it's like a totally different movie it really is and uh yeah not a fun part of the movie but very interesting yeah i think this is um this is definitely the part where he had his uh themes in order you know where where he was clearest on his intent and criticism 
and where he was able to use his symbolism in the most effective way. You know what I mean? Keep going with that. Uh, well, I mean, that's just it, right? This this character at the end of the second act, he's discovered that his his journey was fruitless and, you know, his pursuits were pointless and maybe life was pointless and everything. And so he just kind of gives up and he gets shot and he dies. And when he wakes up, you know, this is this is very much the redemption arc, right? This is very much like uh, he's doing something good now. He just wakes up and decides, I'm going to help these people who have, I, we're, we're to assume kept him alive somehow, magically. Um, and I guess it's been, they say it in the movie, but it, it's obviously a long time since his son is a grown adult now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, I guess in, in the commentary, Hodorowsky says, it may be 10 years, it may be 100 years, we just don't know. Right, right. And again, he has, you know, it's it's a very clear, um, when you have the townspeople who are all rich and, you know, they're, they're playing games and murdering slaves and just doing the awful things, it's like, okay, it's pretty clear he's talking about the bigots of the real world and maybe he has specific targets, but, you know, again, his, his targets are very clear here and his, uh, yeah, his symbolism, it, it makes a lot of sense. This... This part, uh, again, there's, there's so much creativity seeping through all the cracks that I don't want to say this part isn't an acid Western because, oh, it's, it certainly is. Yeah. But again, this is very much like a, there's a beginning and middle and end to this one section of the movie. Well, it, and it it's another Western trope, right? It's the stranger coming into a town, discovering trouble and trying to solve that trouble, right? We've also seen this, you know, many, many times in classic westerns um but everything in it is subverted and taken to it the nth degree oh and subverted indeed i mean like he tries to um save these people in the village you know through kindness i mean his character goes from the gunslinger who was shooting people left and right with ease to being this bald monk who spends most of the third act miming you know with his uh yeah. short wife and like <laughs> there's a there's a heavy focus on clowning here yeah uh i don't want to say it kills the pace of the movie because again there's actually like a nice plot here we can follow but it is kind of strange how we go from hyper violence to uh seeing cruelty on screen like hyper cruelty you know and especially uh that scene in the church where they're all you know i believe that i can shoot myself in the head and god will stop the bullet right and then the child dies and it's just you know there's there's still so much shocking imagery on screen but it's also very uh slower paced where i mean this guy's climbing out of the tunnel and he's building he's trying to dig a tunnel you know practically by himself with nothing more than a pickaxe and a basket and he's trying to raise money to get a little bit of dynamite so the rocks are easier to move you know this is very much like a you can't just go and kill four people and be master of the world kind of thing you need to slowly dig this tunnel you know to achieve one good thing in your life my god the the more we talk about this the more i realize how complicated and dense this section of the film is oh yeah yeah i mean the first part you know the, there's it's a pretty clear structure the second part is just meant to trip you out and give you stuff to think about later but the third part is yeah extremely dense with like meaning and imagery and uh, you know, there's a lot you can say about the third act of this movie. There's there's a whole book to be written about this film, obviously, and probably many have been written. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I keep 
splashing on so many different aspects of this. Uh, the scene where they're branding the town members, literally branding oh. them like cattle. Yep. Oh my God. It, just impossible to look away. Mm-hmm. And then I keep contemplating what the symbolism is, is of the eye and the pyramid. Is that there's probably five or 10 different interpretations you could put on that. Yeah. And it, it, again, it's not important to understand what that means because we understand it's just like, you know, a, a sort of a cult mentality, whether it's like the rich have their own cult sort of thing, or you, you can apply any meaning to it and it doesn't uh, take away from the other things that are happening. Um, I mean, yeah, just, again, it's almost overwhelming how much he throws at you at the very end of the movie, right? Yeah. The fact that the son, who we saw naked and innocent, is now the leader of this corrupt church, but ends up kind of becoming his friend in the end. Well, he wants to kill him. He 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 says, as soon as he sees him, as soon as he recognizes El Topo, he says, I'm going to kill you. And he's only spared because he's like, well, let me finish this tunnel first, and then you can kill me. But then he ends up riding into the sunset with with uh, El Topo's uh, woman and her baby. Yeah. Yeah, so again, the, that character is redeemed. Um, there is there's there's one little mother. Oh, <laughs> that's clever. Um, but there is one little, again, sort of... Um, plot point that that like i'm not gonna say ruined it for me but really took me out of the experience for the briefest amount of time because i know exactly it was necessary but um you know he uh Altop was doing this he's digging this tunnel right to free these people and they're all you know um they're not ready for this world they're not right for this society right it's sort of like oh the freedom actually becomes their undoing all right again lots of themes lots of stuff here but he finally breaks the tunnel and they all come running through and he kind of gets pushed aside and then all the people rush into the village and that's when the villagers slaughter them. I, I just really didn't buy into the fact that these people, many of who don't even have legs, were all able to rush into this village. Yeah. And then we see El Topo running after them being like, stop, stop. And it's sort of, well, how did they all make it down from the mountain into this village and he wasn't able to stop them? <laughs> Nothing happened to him. Okay, so Chris, I got to ask you why are you stuck on a plot point in a film like this? I know, I know, because <laughs> it's one of those things where you can, you can see how you get from point A to point B to point A to point B and then it was one of these things where I just thought, you know, with so much creativity, he could have had a little creative explanation you know, and again, the scene works wonderfully. You see these people come in, you know, they're hobbling and, you know, they're deformed and uh, and then they all get slaughtered in a most brutal fashion by, you know, old women with rifles and yeah. stuff. It's very much like, this isn't just a man's world. This is like a society that is ready to crush these people, right? They so, were again, waiting for them like execution style. Oh yeah. And it's such a horrible scene. Oh <laughs> my God. Oh. And again, so like it's a perfect scene, but I just hate how there's also so many shots of him running down the mountain trying to stop these people, cutting to scenes of these people barely shuffling along. And it just makes me wonder how they could possibly have outrun. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but it doesn't ruin the movie. It doesn't ruin the movie. <laughs> ah. 
So but again, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so like, what did you make of, um, you know, he slaughters the town. Why do you think he killed himself? Uh, I think he was so disillusioned by everything that happened around him that he didn't seem, he, he realized this, the futility of him being alive. Uh, but I'm not sure if that makes sense because, you know, uh, Mujercito's just having his baby at that same time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he's just been so confronted with the nihilism of the world around him that um, he just uh, didn't see any reason to keep going. But there's, I guess you could see this in some ways as him being, want to sacrifice himself, himself in some way. I don't know. Do you? What do you think? What do you think? Well, I, I asked you because I didn't understand. I mean, it happens because it seems like the thing to happen. Um, but I didn't fully understand it until i watched dance of reality because i think the point he's making at the end of el topo is the theme that he hammers into us again and again in that other movie and that is that no good deed goes unpunished no good deed goes unpunished okay and i think that has to sit heavily within him as a director as a creative person because he just keeps making that the point of his artistic works and i feel like it must have been el topo where he said like i can't stand this world where good things lead to bad things where good actions lead to destruction you know mm -hmm. i think that must have just been pressing down on him his whole life as we'll see in dance of reality it certainly did so before we make our transition i'm gonna yes. say um Altopo was a great experience for me. Yes. I know a lot of people have seen this movie many times. I'm not sure I need to see this movie again. <laughs> I saw it uh, for the first time. I think I was sick and I watched it on a laptop that was sitting on my chest as I was lying down with a fever. And I knew I had experienced something. But when I watched it the second time here... <laughs> I uh, realized how little I had actually absorbed. And that... <laughs> what I assumed might have been a fever dream was actually what was on screen. So yeah, it's uh, it's something to uh, sit back and recover from. That's for sure. See, yeah. Yeah. I I'm with you there. Yeah. I feel like I need to like let my mind sit. Um, Dance of reality was actually a nice contrast to it. I'm glad we decided to switch from Holy mountain, which would have probably been uh, <laughs> more, more of the same in some ways. You'll have uh, to see Holy mountain someday. Yeah, and I will. Um, Dance of Reality is really kind of in dialogue with this film. Um, why don't we Why don't we start with just what was your overall kind of feeling from that movie? Dance of Reality, I liked a lot. It wasn't exactly what I was expecting because the feeling of that movie, um, at first it kind of throws you off and you think like, am I watching something that's just very European? Am I watching something that's uh, maybe pretentious? Am I watching something that's maybe overly artistic or that I'm not used to? And then it clicked with me maybe 20 minutes in that it's just, it's an opera where only one character sings. You know, it's very much theater on the screen. Mm -hmm. And once you, once you dial into that tone, it's actually like, a very interesting movie. <laughs> it is a very interesting movie. 
yeah i i compare it to magic realism too gabriel garcia marquez yeah because it, it alternates between a kind of prosaic everyday reality and a larger kind of symbolic reality that mm-hmm. uh, you kind of have to be keyed into mm-hmm. i felt every minute of the two hours of this film also i gotta say yeah it i thought it was beautiful uh you know what it didn't drag for me but i maybe just watched it correctly uh, <laughs> I took some breaks. wow I took some okay breaks. watched it correctly tell me that tell me about that chris uh well i didn't eat you should never eat while watching a Hodorowsky movie. <laughs> it won't sit well. Um, <laughs> but also, I think I did laundry halfway through this. So I had a little time to absorb what I was seeing and then jump back in, uh, which might be good to have a, a planned intermission. <laughs> it is a very dense film. Again, yeah. um, so much happens in it and so thematically rich. Uh, so much happens on the symbolic level. Yeah. And it's so much kind of in dialogue with Odorowski's life and him trying to kind of come to terms with with him, himself and his family. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is autobiographical, right? I don't know if we mentioned that, but it is very much his story of his childhood. And it's a warm film. Surprisingly. But it's also a kind of deeply challenging film in a number of ways. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, again, um, you know, this, this movie, it's, it's about a young boy, right? Growing up in Chile, his father um, is a Russian Jewish immigrant who's just crazy about Stalin. And his mother only speaks by singing in operatic ways, which again, just totally throws you off at the beginning of the movie. And you think, oh, this is really maybe kind of dumb. Like, this is an artistic decision maybe I can't get on board with. But you get used to it. It actually kind of pans out, especially with the great score. Um, So anyway, this kid is, you know, very meek, mild, and not treated well by his father especially. And his mother thinks he's the incarnation of her father who died in an exploding alcohol barrel because they have the same hair. So his mother's a little crazy. And his dad is very cruel. And obviously this is going to be, you know, for most of the movie, just this kid experiencing the tragedies of childhood, not the good parts. All done in this kind of very surreal way where the imagery just keep continually is coming at you. Um, it's yeah. not necessarily meant to be straightforward. It's meant to be kind of symbolic. Yeah, the imagery is is not straightforward, but I found the story surprisingly straightforward like enjoyable that you can follow everything that's happening on screen the weird things that happen you think okay maybe this will be explained to me later maybe it just has a deeper meaning for the character in this moment there's nothing to i mean besides the uh amount of violence and nudity and you know like there's shocking things happening in this otherwise straightforward story about childhood but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it takes you along in a very nice way that you can follow without being put off too much. Really is like uh, two separate films in a way. First half is really about Alejandro, the child. Mm-hmm. Jaimito, as they call it, Jaimecito. And then the second half really follows the father's life, Jaime. 
And uh, it really is uh, just like this really interesting uh, contrast between them. The father, who's played by Jodorowsky's, Jodorowsky's son, Brontis, who is the yeah. boy, man who played the boy in El Topo. Yes. Everyone mentions who talks about this film. Um, comes back and is playing his father, who's a very cruel man. He's a, He loves Stalin. Yeah. And his parents run a shop called but the Ukrainian or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's got communist symbols on the on the sign. They got a giant I love the picture promo, of yeah. Stalin inside the shop. And his dad dresses like Stalin. He's got the mustache of Stalin. And yeah. he wears the revolutionary clothes of Stalin. He's a committed Marxist who's part of a cabal who wants to overthrow the uh, corrupt uh, military dictatorship of uh, Colonel Ibanez. Right, uh, and and ends up finding himself much more morally compromised when he's confronted with the chance to live his dreams, uh, which I thought was fucking incredible. Yeah, uh, that's the thing. Watching El Topo and knowing that that little boy was Hodorowsky's son kind of made me worried. Like, um, you know, you kind of shouldn't put your naked son on view for the world here and put him through this horrible experience of filming this gory movie. And it kind of made me worried for the kid. <laughs> and you know what? I don't know about Brontus and how he grew up and anything, but he's an amazing actor in this movie. Yeah. Um, like, I, again, I don't know what's going on in his head, but uh, his acting chops certainly paid off. He really goes through a journey in this film. And I'm not oh, sure yeah. he appreciates the fact the fact he went through a journey either. Oh, not at all. No, I mean <laughs> he doesn't like his journey. I mean, to, in broadest terms, he goes from being this very cruel father to being this father who sort of appreciates his family and his place in life. Um, but yeah, he doesn't seem happier at the end. That's for sure. <laughs> no, no. Well, of course not, because he's been through basically the complete destruction of his own ego, right? And that's really what the story is of this film as much as the story of Alejandro himself is mm -hmm. kind of the, the popping of his father's uh, mental psychic balloon. Right? Yeah. Because at the beginning, he's all about, um, I, you have to be tough in this world, right? Oh. He, ha he has a horrible scene where he's like, I'm going to slap you uh really hard i'm gonna slap you and i'll slap you harder and slap you harder and you need to tell me when it stops at that point i'll think that you're a, a girl yeah that's the term what he says um and uh he slaps the the father slaps uh alejandro so hard that he breaks one of his teeth and he's forced to go to the dentist and he's like he refuses to let him use uh anesthetic yeah ah. <laughs> And you're Again, like, this is the meanest father I've ever seen. This is the meanest person I've ever seen. I mean, that's the thing. He is, he's, I don't know if mean is the right word. He's just kind of a horrible person. <laughs> like, he's not mean in the sense that um, he wants something bad for his son. He just thinks that this is how you raise a kid. You know, he's just horribly wrong in thinking that this is how you raise a child. You know, I mean, there's that great scene where, where he's so proud to make his son the mascot for the fire department, you know? So he shows a little bit of pride in his son. And then as soon as his son lets him down, it's like, oh yeah, this guy is a terrible father. Even <laughs> that little glimmer of pride is immediately extinguished. 
and unlike El Topo, well, I guess like to El Topo, actually, he ends up getting humbled in, in these really profound ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the dad, I mean, he goes yeah. through quite a journey. And I really liked his journey, too. I think I think that's what kept me going for this movie, is we start with the, you know, here's childhood trauma. <laughs> here's all the bad things my dad did, right? And it's shot wonderfully. And it's, again, like I said, built like a stage play where everything is very dramatic and very, uh, you know, there's opera music and people singing and, and there's weird things happening in the background. It's, it's all very much built like a stage play. So you understand what's going on, but then I guess it's maybe a little more than halfway through. We go on this adventure where he's about to assassinate the leader of the country and he becomes the horse trainer and he's got this big long drawn out plan that he can't go through and then exactly like in El Topo, right? He becomes crippled by his own ambitions and has to go through, you know, he's taken care of by this old carpenter and just wants to do something nice for the community, right? Oh, he's just going to build chairs now. You know, his hands are broken and he failed and his family is gone and everything. And it's like, he just needs to do something nice. He just needs to redeem himself in some way. And even that, right? Even that goes awry and the old man dies the old man that took care of him and uh oh and again the woman who took care of him while he was sort of in like a memory coma she hangs herself when he wakes up because she says oh you're gonna leave me now for your family so again Podorsky's just saying like look at all these good things that people do that are met with nothing but death and destruction and you know the redemption arc is ultimately like you know it ultimately leads not nowhere but again to more death and destruction again it's no good deed goes unpunished well it's i all, mean it's all the debris whole... we leave behind us as part of a messy life too yeah i mean if you didn't understand that message to begin with there's a whole character in this movie who's a poor boy who just wants a pair of shoes so the kid gives him the shoes and then it ends up that he the shoes were no good for, you know, going to the beach. So the kid trips on a rock and dies drowning in the ocean. And it's like, oh, he did something nice. He gave the poor kid shoes and then the kid died. But then they build a temple to the boy and school children go and light candles to him and have some sort of pilgrimage. Yeah, they, they pay their respects that they have to do. And then they go off and play on the beach, throw rocks in yep. the water. And it's all like so meaningless. Yep. And oh, I mean, uh, there's there's a great scene where plague victims come to town, right? And they're all walking and they got the big black umbrellas and they're all dressed in rags and it's like this horrible harbinger of doom and no one will go near them and they just want water. So the dad says, I'm going to bring them water. I'm going to, you know, show these people that I'm brave. And, you know, you can tell he wants to do something kind of good without admitting that he's doing something pure hearted, right? He goes and he brings them water. What did they do? They rip apart his donkey and eat it. <laughs> it's just, again, very straightforward. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> and then he catches the plague from them. <laughs> yes. Comes and back go... to their shop. <laughs> the villagers want to burn down the shop because he has the plague. And then in the strangest moment in a very strange film. Some uh, signature Hodorowsky weirdness. Yeah. Uh, the mother pees on him as a way to heal him. After after praying to God and making her body the vehicle of her husband's redemption. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a baptism thing, but also he couldn't have done it in a stranger way. <laughs> uh, and, and like in this way where you're like, what am I watching? Like, like <laughs> what what is actually happening on the screen here? Yeah, it's funny. The, the times in this movie when the mother really comes out and does something noble and noteworthy in his childhood, you know, the times when he remembers his mother the most are like the most disturbing parts of the movie. You know, her peeing on his father and then there's a whole scene where he's afraid of the dark. So she paints him in black and she says, well, now you're the darkness, you know? And he's like, and that's how I became not afraid of the dark. But then she also strips naked and they run around chasing each other and it's very strange. And you're again, kind of wondering what movie you're watching. Yeah. Is this supposed to be implying something about incest between them? Uh, but they seem like a relatively normal mother child thing. But again, why is she singing in this? Why is she only singing in the opera voice? Is this meant to be? I mean, I, apparently his mother had it at dreams of being an opera singer, but but yeah. but uh, why is she only singing? Uh, what is this a sign of mental illness on her part? Is she delusional? Is she? Uh, it's all so baffling. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely a little delusional. Uh, <laughs> but I think this movie uh, benefits greatly, greatly in a way that Al Topo doesn't um, from context. Mm -hmm. uh, because we know this is biographical and we know that the creator, you know, the, the person that we're seeing the movie through the eyes of, for the most part, is the young version of the person who wrote and directed it, right? So all the things that are strange, you know, are very easily chalked up to like, well, he was a kid. That's how he saw it. And that's how I saw a lot of this is his memory yeah. now as an 80 year old person, right? And we should mention, you know, Alejandro is in this film himself. Yeah. And he puts his arm around the boy and kind of basically says, you know, uh, this is important or this is your future or this is meaningful gives us context so yeah um, he is literally in dialogue with himself throughout this film yeah and I, again i think like this this magical realism you know in a in a lesser movie could come off as very pretentious whereas in this movie it just comes off as like yeah this is how it is seen through the eyes of this child you know mm -hmm. i love the scene where, where he's marching in the the fireman's parade you know, and he's got the star on him. And then it suddenly, you know, he's having a panic attack. So the thing just crawls up and suffocates his face. And, you know, in any other movie, you'd want to say, well, that didn't really happen, did it? But in this movie, you know exactly like, okay, this happened to him as a kid. This is how he felt. And this is a very creative way of portraying that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, not everything in this film is through his eyes, though, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah, yeah, especially, I mean, he couldn't have possibly known exactly what his father experienced in his life, but he makes the story anyways. So the whole bit about his father, uh, so they, they go to a dog show where dogs are dressed up in costumes, so weird. <laughs> Just another weird one, yeah. And he goes with his friend, uh, who uh, that's the anarchist, I think, who's another one of the Hodorowskis, uh, Aiden Hodorowski. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all uh, his sons, his grandsons in this. This is all, <laughs> this is a family affair. Right. Well, and, right. And that's a whole other thing about this. His father abandoned him. He abandoned his child. And then 
now it's all coming back and everyone's together. Uh, I mean, how weird would it be if your father said, you are going to play your grandfather in this movie and I'm going to direct you and and you're going to have to do the things that I think your grandfather did in his life through a magical realism spectrum and your brother is going to be this raving religious nut on a pier. Like, this must have been a weird experience. <laughs> Well, I mean, come on, look who the look who their grandfather is, right? He is yeah. he is, you know, the, the guy who made the ink call and El yeah. Topo and made a thousand plays and is a mute as a mime. I mean, this is you know, your your beloved eccentric grandfather. Father and grandfather, yes. Father and grandfather, who everyone's like, Yeah, sure, let's let's just go spend time with our crazy, crazy uh family member because this is going to be an experience i'll never forget um something that's different from anything else anyway i was going to talk about um why do you think he's unable to actually kill president ibanez when he has the opportunity why does he in fact not just uh, not be able to kill him but jump in front of him when his friend tries to kill him oh okay so i actually thought that was pretty straightforward I think he saves the life of um, the guy at first. You know, he he thwarts the first assassination because he has this plan that he's going to kill uh, the president's horse, right? What the president cares about more than anything in the world is this horse who is just absolutely treated like a king. This horse is round the clock, you know. They go through a lot of this taking care of the horse bit, right? But I, that's his plan. And he thinks, you know, if this guy just gets shot at the stupid dog show, that is not justice, but this serves my plan to make him really suffer. And he goes through with that long plan. He becomes the horse trainer. He kills the horse and he's about to kill the guy too. And I think the reason he doesn't and can't is easily explained later when the wife says, well, because you got to know this guy and started to see all the things in him that you saw in Stalin. Mm. Right? Like, you don't realize you were a Stalinist and he was a monster. And here's a monster who's acting very much like Stalin. You know, you, but you're not a monster. You know, you can't sink to their level, kind of thing. Yeah, that scene at the end where we see the three posters or whatever yeah. of the three people. And actually, it's remarkable how similar, uh, how similar the father looks to them, looks like them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's he basically switches his allegiance in some way. Yeah, or, well, again, I, I think it all comes or sees, when... sees the deeper need or the deeper connection. Go ahead. Well, you're gonna say something else. Well, I think it's the same as the redemption arc in El Topo, right? Where he reaches the pinnacle of his accomplishment, right? El Topo is, he says, I defeated all the gunslingers. Why am I not enlightened? Right? And then we get the third act of the movie where he's trying to do good. And in this one, he says, okay, I reached the pinnacle. I can assassinate this man. Why am I not enlightened? Why is this not my moment of victory? And then he goes in something of a coma, comes out and tries to do good. You know, it's it's such a good scene too, when he's standing in the church and you think this is a guy who constantly throughout the movie saying, there is no God. Don't you dare believe that. And he's standing there clapping in the church. And it's like, this guy is really come full circle from this you know it's a very good character progression throughout the movie yeah and then he's the one in the parade you know he's trying to salute the guy he's like okay i'm 
I'm living my old pursuits kind of thing. And, you know, they beat him because he can't salute properly because he's paralyzed. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, you know, side note, I think that's the one part of the movie that really didn't work for me, where there's a big fight scene with animal noises and no one's actually getting hit. It's very weird. Oh, where he's beating up the Nazis. Yeah, and it's all tiger Magic him. powers or something, yeah. That, that was a little too... Um, I don't think that one landed. But okay. the symbolism works, right? The symbolism works. <laughs> and, you know, and he realizes that, like, yeah, he was trying to destroy a monster. He was worshipping a monster. And he has a monster inside of him, obviously. But that's not the person he wants to be anymore. I like that. He's, he, he actually really has grown. The church scene especially was striking when everyone's yeah. lifting up the chairs and they're, you know, singing <laughs> and they're kind of ecstatic in their love for for God. And um, you really do see the father changing in, in a lot in ways. Um, he really seems to be um, becoming some, we see him really becoming somebody else. And it, it's this kind of transcendence of ordinary life. This transcendence of the the physical world you live in into this kind of deeper, uh, some whatever you call it, mystical world. <laughs> yeah, I I especially like the um the contrast between the two church scenes in the two movies. How in the first one, you know, he's just all in out telling you like the church runs this town, they're evil. Look at them all; they're shooting themselves in the head, right? And then in this movie, he takes it uh kind of the same theme where he's like, you know, look at these good-hearted people. You know, he at least realizes that, you know, the people of this church mean well, but it's still the old man is worshiping and that's what gives him a heart attack, right? Mm -hmm. So it's still no good deed goes unpunished, no righteous act, you know, doesn't lead to death kind of thing. But it's uh, much more subtle, much more uh, carefully handled, and I think much more powerful. The priest even says, though, too, you know, uh, he died, but he died you know, uh, extolling the, the virtues of the Lord. So therefore, yeah. it's a good death, you know? Yeah, and they're kind enough to be like, I'm going to take up a collection so we can bury him properly, you yeah. know? It's the same message, but a lot more kind. And by the end, uh, Father's hair has turned white. He went from a yeah. had, had a black hair to, to white hair. Yeah, yeah, it's very much the same journey. Yeah. It really is very much the same journey. I found the ending to be surprisingly just moving. Yeah. When they're going off, um, where they're basically walking to the ferry and behind them are moving cardboard cutouts of all the ah. different things that they had encountered throughout uh, the characters' lives. I just thought it was just such a beautiful that was kind a great of image. Scene. I love the cutouts on the pier. That that was great, and they were right to make that the the theatrical poster for it too, because that's such so, a cool theme. Yeah, it's such a striking image, right? And looking at it, like we we didn't touch on so many of the other themes we could have talked about. Oh, there's from, so many. From you know the native man who uh, was another one of Hodorowski's children, uh, you know the the clowns at the beginning. <laughs> the clowns. That's right. <laughs> uh, what about the miners? The scene with the prostitutes, the miners uh, yeah. who were abandoned, you know, more more of Podorowski and his love of people with distorted bodies. Mm -hmm. 
I like that that was a very clear explanation how, you know, in El Topo, you wonder if it's just a gimmick for shock. And then you watch this movie and you realize that is a deeply ingrained thing within him is these people who, you know, just worked and now have no arms, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we're destroyed by the machinery of the capitalist society. Because there is a real kind of, there really is kind of a fury in this film too. It's oh, yeah. deeply sweet and moving, but he's furious about the, the nature of a society that's just so meaningless. Oh, yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, he clearly did not enjoy his time in Chile. <laughs> no. Uh, no, and then we didn't touch on the anti-Semitism. There's the, oh, yeah. the great scene where uh, the boy um, basically gives one of the, the armless men an ice cream mm-hmm. cone and he's like he's expecting it to be uh something that like is a true moment of physical contact and then the man starts with anti-semitic slurs yeah like fuck you know you can't do right for anybody because you know people are going to be who they are people are going to carry their own bitterness and frustration and evilness with them And, and yeah, again, it's no good. He goes unpunished. He's coming he back to the over and over again. every ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a movie I want to rewatch, and I especially want to watch um, the kind of semi sequel to this. I think it's a direct sequel. I started watching it, and it opens okay. up with them leaving Chile. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. yeah. It it's just a continuation. Good. I am I am intrigued by that. So what do you think of it in the first couple minutes? Uh in the first couple minutes I thought, oh, this is a sequel. I better watch the first one. <laughs> okay. It's endless yeah. poetry, which is also on uh the service movie, among other things. Um, I'll tell you what I thought about them together was like, wow, anyone should be so lucky as to be 93 years old and say, Hey, do you want to make this like relatively big budget movie about your childhood, like to be able to reflect on your life in such a rich artistic and like clearly um, free way, you know, no one was stopping this guy in his pursuits, in his creative endeavors, you know, they just let him do it the way he wanted to. And he's an old man. And it's like, boy, that is, that is like the dream of artists, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah to get a chance to really sum up your career well i meant to deliver something that's so beautiful yeah i mean not just your career your whole life to say like this is the lessons learned from my life it's not just an autobiography it's like a my life is an essay you know it's like let me give you the gift of my life lived you know plenty of directors have had the chance to do autobiographical films but this is a unique one Oh, next that, level. You know, yeah. they, there's a kind of next level, yeah. Next level elements to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, great pair of films. Yeah, if you can stomach them, they are very rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I do have to say again, they were, they felt, both felt long to me. Both felt long to me. Well, yeah, they're so dense. That's just it, right? Yeah. They're, they're long, but it's because so much is happening so much there's so much on screen it's not long like a uh i watched uh paris texas <laughs> great movie side note that's a very long movie where not a lot happens 
these are all movies that take you on adventures. It's kind of exhausting. Actually, look down at my watch a half hour into uh, Dance of Reality thinking, I got to be at least an hour into this. And I was like 30 minutes in. Yeah, no, it, it is exhausting. There's there's a lot. and But you know what? They're also paced well. Yeah, they are paced well. And Which I is think, very impressive. I think coming back to it, having kind of swum in that water, I think I'll swim a lot better. Going into endless poetry, I think I'll feel that same way. Yeah, um, I have no suggestions for diving into Holy Mountain. You can never be prepared for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I watched the first 10 minutes or so and I'm like, I'm not mentally prepared for this. Yeah, yeah. Altope was a good starting point. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Chris. I, I'm not sure I would have watched these at this point, and I'm really glad I did. Yeah, they, they need to be seen once and then uh, and then thought about a lot. And I don't know if you ever need to see them again, but you might get something out of them a second time. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you.